Apple Presents Events at the Apple Store. Welcome to the stage. This evening's guest moderator, Grammy Award nominee, Ashley Kahn. Uh, my name's Ashley Kahn. I'm the guy who's going to take over the remote now. I've written a few books, but the spotlight today goes on a gentleman named Christian Atunde Ajwa. Please help me welcome him to the stage. Brother uh, designed the cover. Yeah, my, my twin brother did that cover. I dig that, man. I've never seen it that big before. That's cool. So, Christian, who um, uh, recently had uh, the honor to change his name from Christian Scott, um, has a 10 year uh, recording history behind him. And uh, it's always an event when he has a new recording that comes out. This double CD, 23-track album, is incredible. And it's the focus and the reason why we're here today. So once again, congratulations. 23 tracks, it's very expansive. There's a lot of flavors and colors and uh, feelings that are coming through on this album. Can you tell us about it and what you were... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's, of course, you know, doing a double record is always sort of a daunting thing to do because you, you want to make sure that you give every flavor possible, you know. Uh, but for this particular song, one of the reasons I um, I like to play it or we loved recording it is, first off, it's really hard to play, but the subject matter. Uh, the song is composed about the collective rape of 400 women in the Sudan. So I know it's heavy subject matter, but you know, for us, you know, we think it's important to speak about the issues that affect our community, the world community, the global community. And um, this is one that I, I pretty much I like to play anytime we play because it's something I think people need to know about, you know. And um, did you know when you went into the studio what you would be doing and the connection between the songs and the subject matter? Well, some, most of the stuff. I mean, when you have that much material, it's hard, right? Because I think we had prepared close to 37 tunes. Uh, the deluxe version of the, the, the album, right now it looks like it's going to maybe be 32, 33 songs with remixes and stuff. So you have to have a general idea of what you want to do going in. Um, I, the, inter the interesting thing about going to the studio this time is uh, the, the record we did before this was with Rudy Van Gelder, who's you know the, the great jazz. This guy is like one of the most prolific recording engineers in the history of music, and uh, yeah, it's this this one up there in the white. And uh, we uh, we did this record live off the floor with no headphones. So basically, you, the way we recorded it, you couldn't edit anything, right? So whatever happened, if you played a 17-minute song and you know someone did something that might not be so aesthetically pleasing, you sort of had to live with it. So the interesting thing about going into the new double record was when you record like that, for some reason with a lot of jazz guys have to record live off the floor. They don't have any assistance. There's no editing. It sort of creates a, a, a type of machismo in the musician, right? So he feels like he can do anything. So, you know, I figured since these guys had that sort of swag going on, why not try and make as much music as possible? If they're really that bad, they should be able to do it, you know? So, uh, so we went in the studio and cut this one, and they, you know, these guys were in the studio laughing like it was nothing. So we had a good time. 
And uh, what studio was that? What was the? Uh, well, this one was recorded in the Sear Sound, and uh, the engineer is a guy named Chris Allen. He's a young guy, but he's really good. So we had a good time. You know, every album, of course, in, 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 a, in an artist's career is a step along the path, a step that defines the, uh, uh, that connects with where the artist has been and where the artist is going. And what we have up here on the screen are three, the three most recent albums since you started recording four major labels in 2006. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how does this album fit into that path? And where do you see you know the past having been for you, and where are you going? Well, it's it's interesting just looking at this stuff because like I look at rewind that, and I feel like I'm a baby, you know. And uh, you know when we recorded that, you know we just the intention was to try and create a sound that was a hybrid of what we were playing in the black neighborhoods in New Orleans with the stuff that guys were doing in Boston, and. Uh, you know, sort of started this pr this path, this trajectory of like trying to find a new fusion. And uh, we weren't very good. In fact, we were awful, <laughs> I think. A lot of people liked the album, but we just, we were sad. And, uh, you know, it took a little uh, while to sort of get comfortable in the shoes of, you know, having to perform every day and build as a group. Because one of the things that a lot of people don't talk about is when you're at that level, you're 17, 18, 19 years old making records. The expectation is for an 18-year-old to be able to lead a band of 18-year-olds who are also developing and to be able to compete with the guys that are 50 years old that have been doing it for 40, 30 years or whatever. So, so for us, that was um, we had a good time, but it was a wake-up call. As far as Anthem is concerned, this was sort of that was really the first record where uh, I think the collective identity of the band was forged. Here, you know, Rewind That was more guesswork, and uh, I feel like Anthem was the first time we had a, a real sound. The concept was finally fortified, and uh, to be honest with you, I, I, this is the place, that's the place where I didn't really care about anyone else's take on what my perspective was supposed to be. And uh, I think that was a very important, you know, barrier to cross. Yesterday you said tomorrow, of course, you know, a lot of people like this document. You know, that was, that was us just sort of growing, showing the maturity, you know, showing that we didn't have to play loud and hard to be able to captivate people and touch them. But, you know, when you, when you talk about you're just dealing with a person's trajectory and their path as, a, as an artist, that's a, it's a very hard thing to put into terms, you know, because you're just growing as a person, right? Uh, the things that influence me now, the things that affect me, uh, now are completely different than the way, you know, the things that, that affected me when I was 20 years old or 19 years old. Um, you know, where I look for, uh, uh, for love or, you know, what the things that make me laugh are completely different, right? So as you evolve as a person, you know, I, should, I think people should expect the art to evolve. I always find that it's strange when you listen to like, you know, it could be a rock band or jazz band or hip hop group. And it's like the album from 1989 sounds the same as the album in 2004. That's always weird to me because you know this person has changed, you know. Uh, but for us, you know, it's been a, a journey and a path, and we've had a good time with it. You know, uh, one of the things that um, uh, I, I feel very fortunate about is that I've been able to speak to Christian uh, many times along this path. And most recently, when it comes to this album, he's been introducing me to a new term for the type of music and the type of approach that his group is doing. I think that... Um, uh, many folks who might follow jazz uh, uh, blogs, etc., might know that the, right now there's a lot of kind of resistance to even using the J word 
to describe a lot of improvised uh, music that's out there today. Nicholas Payton, of course, comes to mind with uh, BAM, uh, Black American Music. And Christian has a term called stretch. Yeah, Can you well, tell us about that? Yeah, well, it, it, you know, the term is not something that I created. It's, it actually, you know, we would go on the road and we would see the younger musicians and they'd always say that, oh, like you and Robert Glasper play stretch music. And at first I didn't know what the hell it was. So, you know, if we'd be going places, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what was synonymous with it, so I didn't really want it to touch me at first. And after, you know, a, you know, maybe six months, nine months to a year or something like that of guys continuously saying it every day we would get somewhere and someone would say, okay, this is the dude that created stretch music. So I started really being, you know, sort of trying to get away from the term because I didn't want anybody to put the music into any barriers. I remember having a conversation with my brother and he was saying, you know, things change. And, uh, you know, if someone decides that they want to name the music that you're doing or creating that, then embrace it and try and create the most beautiful thing that you can create from the name, you know? So how would you define what stretch means? Well, stretch, well, in, in my idea of jazz, right, you think of jazz at the turn of the last century. It really is 20th century fusion music, right? So all of these musical forms that evolved out of it, this, these things happen pretty naturally because jazz is a fusion, right? So for my band, really one of the things that we were concentrating on was trying to create another type of fusion that the next generation of guys could pull from as a means of creating new environments and new worlds musically. So it's, you know, I guess that the simple way to say is it's a new fusion, but I think what's important about it is the, how we fuse the music, um, as opposed to it being, you know, sort of just a linear thing where it's like, okay, let's take rock and jazz and play them at the same time, right? Which is sort of more traditional idea. We wanted to try and find a way to acculturate every different type of musical uh, texture, uh, vernacular language that we could into an improvisational form that was essentially genre blind and how it took in other forms. Uh, because for us it's important to try and expand the dialogue, the, you know, the dialogue musically across all of these borders that everyone's constantly trying to, to erect, right? You go into, even if you go to the Mac store on one of the computers downstairs, right? You see uh, rock, hip hop, jazz, blah, blah, blah. You have all these distinctions. Well, for musicians, they don't really see music in those terms, right? For them, it's just sound art. So we wanted to try and find an improvis improvisational form that really acculturated all these different musical cultures and, and, and languages seamlessly as a means of creating a new environment musically so younger musicians could have a launch pad and not say, well, I'm boxed into this hole. I have to be jazz or I have to be rock. So stretch to us is basically you just you're taking all of the genres. Everyone talks about it from the jazz point of view. But really you're just taking every everything that you can take and you're stretching it to fit everything around it. I should add yeah. that uh, the liner notes to the album actually Christian wrote himself and the explanation of stretch really does stretch one's um, awareness of how to think about this music. Um, I'm going to skip forward past. This is the, uh, the quintet, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. This is funny. So this is at Royal Albert Hall, right? We got that's, there. That's on the lower right. Yeah, hand this corner. one right here. We got there really late. Some kind of way my manager sort of double booked us. So we were doing a live performance on BBC Radio when we were supposed to do the sound check. 
And when we get there, there was all types of stuff that was falling from the ceiling, so we had to wear these hard hats. So you see Jemire sort of doing a little gangster lean with his hat. And uh, I, Matthew and I have the uh, yellow hats on, and we were pissed, but it was a fun night. So I'm sorry, I just had to say that. It was great. And the photo to the uh, top left was your gig in Rotterdam at the North Sea oh, Jazz Sea. Festival. So yeah. this is um, actually the reason I chose these photos was to uh, speak about the band and how important they are to, uh, you know. Yeah, these guys sound. are my brothers, man. You know, we've, um, I mean, I've worked with Matthew for almost 10 years. Uh, we met at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and um, it's funny, well, he's over there chilling right now. When he first joined the band, Matthew Stevens, y'all, sorry. <laughs> when, he, uh, when he first joined the band, none of the black dudes wanted to share rooms with him, because he had, like, really, like, that Kurt Cobain thing going on. He had, like, nose rings and stuff, so all of the dudes thought he was a serial killer or something. <laughs> So they'd be like, yo, I ain't rumming with that white boy. He's crazy. And uh, so, but it's over the years, uh, you know, he, he got married and this is what happens. <laughs> but he's like cleaned up. But this guy is, um, you know, I don't get a chance to talk about this a lot, but where he really is, he's my best friend. And we argue like cats and dogs on the road. We cuss each other out. We threaten to fight each other and all types of stuff. But I love him to death. He's 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 uh, we're like um, two pieces to the same coin. So Matthew Stevens. The next guy I guess I'll talk about is uh, Jamire, Jamire Williams. I've known Jamire since I don't know. I was 16, 17 or sixteen, and we met at a jazz camp. He's from Houston. I'm from New Orleans. So. When we got to this camp, it was all these kids from the Northeast. And they don't really play the dozens up here much. You guys know what the dozens is? A ranking on somebody. No ribbon. It's like, you know, like somebody makes fun of you, you know, your teeth or something like that, or you got a big brow ridge or something. They say you look like Australopithecus or something. And uh, so we make, we're, in my culture, we make fun of each other all the time. So when Jamari and I got to this jazz camp, Pretty much all day, every day, we just ribbed and made fun of all of the kids from the Northeast. And they hated it, but we fell in love with each other. And uh, it's, it's funny because at the time, I don't think we really liked each other's playing, right? Because anytime we would play, he would want to play with me, and I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to use this other guy. And I want to play with him. He'd be like, I got another trumpet player. So it's strange how you fast forward two years, and it's like we're kind of become inseparable. But uh, this guy is a titan on the drums. He has his own band called Iramage. They have an album coming out August 21st, so you got to cop that. And, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure having him in the band, but it's time for him to do his own thing. And uh, it's, it's cool, you know, like as we're all, Matthew's doing the same thing. He has a record coming out, but I'm 29 now. You know, the guys are like 29, 30, 31, and we've been playing together for five to 10 years. So it's time for everybody to do their own thing. So it's, it's good. We got the young blood with us. But um, I love Jamire to death. He's like my brother. And y'all better go get that album. <laughs> OK. You got it. Cool. Well, I, I know that from a jazz player's perspective, the absolute luxury of having a group that stays with you as long as your group has stayed together oh, allows you to progress and yeah, to evolve sure. and for that sound to grow. Right. And this album is proof positive of that. So um, I'm sorry, I have to talk. I have to bring up Chris Fun and Lawrence too. I don't want to forget them. So Chris Fun is our bass player. He hails from Baltimore, Maryland, 
And uh, it's funny how he got in the band. We did a jam session. We played for about five hours, and he beat us up the whole time. We finished the session. I immediately walked up to him like, yo, please be in my band. You got to be in my band. He looks me dead in my eyes and goes, no. <laughs> so that was the first time that had ever happened, right? So it's, you know, it hurts a little bit when somebody says that because it's a very personal thing to ask someone to join a group, you know? So I went to the bar. I had a few drinks, and I know there are children here and stuff, so you didn't hear this, but I got a little courage from that, and I went back, and I was like, maybe I'll try bribing him, <laughs> right? So I go back, and I'm like, look, all right, this is how much it pays a week. This is the monthly rate. You got to be in this band. We're going to go up, up. Don't worry. And he looks at me and goes, hell no. And I remember <laughs> there wasn't nothing I could say. I remember just packing my stuff up and leaving like, man, this dude's a jerk. So I have no idea how he got in the band, because I didn't ask him again. He just showed up on a gig. I don't know how he ended up in the van, but I always say it's that the best thing I ever did was to ask him because I think this dude is the baddest bass player on the planet right now. You guys will see him play in a minute, so we love him, Chris Fun. And uh, Lawrence Fields is last but never least. He's the sort of the baby of the band. He just joined the band about nine months ago, right before the record, actually. And that's interesting because his, his personality really contrasts everybody else's in the band. Like, I think... Most of the guys in the band have like sort of this, um, they, they have this machismo about them, right? It's almost like athletes as opposed to musicians. But Lawrence has like this quiet cool, like he's got nothing to prove, nothing's deliberate, everything's sort of calculated. So when he joined the band, it sort of changed the entire environment because his approach, is, and you'll find this a lot with really great musicians, is how they are in their personal lives, how they navigate you know, the world in general is usually how they play. So, uh, so he's been a, a pleasure to have as well. But I love all these guys. And you guys will hear baby Joe, Joe Dyson or a blooded Dyson. Sometimes they call him Smoking Joe Dyson. So you'll hear him in a minute too. I mentioned family and the whole New Orleans connection. And there's no way oh to... Oh, my God. <laughs> this, yeah, this is the awe moment. So if you feel so compelled... Um, that's, uh, of course, Christian and his twin brother, Kyle. That's my Kyle. brother, Kyle. I don't know which one is which, though. I couldn't tell you. Who, by the way, is, has his own project happening up in Broadway right yeah, now. Yeah, well, he's basically ADing uh, for Spike Lee is doing this new thing uh, with Mike Tyson on Broadway, The Undisputed Truth. My brother's the assistant director on that. He's been working with Spike for years, and, and he's doing his own thing. So he's a, he's a film director. NYU? Yeah, NYU. Uh, let's see. Uh, Mom, do you know which one is which one is Kyle and which one am I? Do you know here? Okay, I'm on the I'm on the right. If if you're facing this, I'm to the right. My brother is to the left. And, and there you are with your grandfather. And with my grandfather, the chief. This was the year that we actually um, massed as Obas. Uh, which are kings in Benin, which is also related to my names. Uh, so this is me uh, to the right again, and that's my brother. I don't. I think he saw whoever was taking the picture. <laughs> it's funny. He's making a funny face. Like, don't do it. And uh, at the bottom here is actually. Um, this is a really sad day. This was the day that my grandfather. Well, this is my grandfather's funeral, and I'm playing here with my uncle Donald and Milton. Uh, Baptiste is playing as well. He actually died shortly after that as well. That was a really hard. Um, it's hard to play when you're dealing with those, you know, that many emotions. But uh, we made it through it. 
Donald, of course, being Donald Harrison, who we know Doc. from Treme and so many great recordings, and years before that being part of Art Blakey's Messengers, etc. So there's incredibly deep roots that you're representing here, and that's for some people that's a big load to carry. How how does that work with with you with your music when you go back to New Orleans? Well, I mean, I don't see. Um, it's just who I am, you know. I mean, when I was a I grew up in a, an incredibly nurturing environment where, you know, you were, I don't want to say you were forced to covet your history, but you, you're, you're, you were around so many examples of what was beautiful about who you are that it's hard not to fall in love with it yourself. And, uh, but I don't, you know, I don't look at it as carrying anything, you know, it's just who I am, you know, I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of my past, my history, my family's history my people's history in America. I think there's a, a lot that we can learn from those things, and so why not wear it, you know? And indeed you do, right on the album cover. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which we'll see again in a, in a quick second. Um, and uh, of course, you know, the, uh, the, the music in New Orleans really is what gave this whole improvisational tradition its birth, and how do you feel it works through your music? I mean, do you, do you know... How the New where, Orleanian influences? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting because, you know, for a lot of years, critics would always say he doesn't sound like a trumpet player from New Orleans because the music wasn't second-line music or it wasn't the, what you would say is traditional uh, jazz stuff. But I think anyone that's really listening hard enough can hear it, you know? Uh, I, I get that a lot of people say, well, you know, if, ask you to explain that. But for me, it's... I'm New Orleanian, right? It's like when I, you know, I walk down the street, I talk to someone, they say, well, you don't have a New Orleanian accent. Doesn't mean I'm not New Orleanian, right? So I view it sort of in a similar way with music. It just, it's there because I'm there. And once yeah. you get to New Orleans, you realize that it, 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 it depends what block you're yeah, from. Exactly, sure, exactly. We're going to move to you guys now and make this more of a discussion with you guys. If you've got any questions, uh, we're going to uh, bring a microphone around. Just raise your hand. The microphone will hit you. Just wait for the microphone to come to you, please. My protocol. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> it's coming. Hi. Hey. Uh, hey, man. my name or anything. Does that matter? Probably not. Uh, it does. Hi. What's your name? Uh, Spencer Goldrich. Uh, I'm becoming a bigger and bigger fan basically every time I hear your stuff. Uh, I've been listening to jazz or anything. I, I think I was still a lot, a lot of different stuff when I was younger, but really, I guess, stretch uh, last, what, two years or so? And what, I'm 19 now, and I was thinking you mentioned how you, your music has evolved in the last, let's say, decade or so. And I was kind of curious, there's uh, two parts to this. Um, one, when, before your first album, first what were you really into, listening to? Forget influence even. Forget what influenced you, what made you the musician you are, what you really, what really got you, mm -hmm. and how do you feel about those same musicians or groups now? That's a great question, man. Um, well, when I, was, when I was developing as a musician, I never had those lines, right? I wasn't like the kid that learned to play music and said, okay, I want to play jazz, so I'm only going to listen to jazz, right? So, like, I was the kid that was listening to Eric B. and Rakim, or Prince, right? I mean, I was the dude, like, running around in, like, purple underwear trying to be Prince, like, you know, <laughs> it's cool, right? So, I mean, I didn't, I never had those lines, you know? Um, 
it's it's hard to say now exactly what I was listening to. I just remember that I was always listening, you know, and I never had this. Um, I never had the idea that because someone was doing a different form of music that that was inferior to being a jazz musician. I think that's a problem in, with a lot of jazz musicians. It plagues them. They have sort of this elitist view on what they do and sort of, you know, everything else is at a distance because we're jazz. And I, you know, immediately when I first started to play, I bucked that because I thought that that was absurd because different, you know, I'm no more valid than you are. You're no more valid than I am. So how could what we create as human beings be more or less valid, right? They're taste issues, but I immediately threw those things away. But I pretty much listened to anything that I could get my hands on, even stuff that people said was bad. Like when I was in junior high school or developing in high school, guys would be like, oh, that record is garbage. That'd be the first thing that I would grab because it was something about that that gave them that visceral of a reaction, and I needed to understand that. So, you know, it was just important to be a student of music, you know. Um, as far as the things that I can remember um, and how I feel about them today, like, you know, I don't still walk around in purple drawers, but I still like prints, you know. And uh, those things, certain things, if they captivate you in that way, it, it evolves. But I think that that initial spark, it's always somewhere. It resonates somewhere. Yeah. Great question, man. What are you listening to that's contemporary? Whether now? it's yeah, I listen to all types of stuff. Uh, let's see. Last night I was listening to Saul Williams. Uh, before let me see, we listened to Saul Williams. I listened to um, uh, the new Likey Lee joint. Also, this girl, somebody gave me this Lana Del Rey album. I listened to a track from that. Um, and I'm trying to think this week. You know, I don't have time to so much time to listen anymore. But I'm just thinking the last couple of days. Um, oh, we, I did a uh, we did a uh, a mashup of um, No Church in the Wild, like Kanye and Jay Z, for this new album that's coming out on Concord with a collective of all really young musicians. So I listened to the original to yesterday just to make sure I didn't mess it up too badly. Uh, but all types of stuff, man, wide range of stuff. Question in the back. Okay. Hey, Christian. Steven. Um, really? How are you? Sorry, this is one of my first students. I've known him since he was eight. What do you want? Oh, I just wanted to uh, ask you to explain why you changed your name. Why? Yeah. Like, what prompted yeah. that? Well, I think um, for me, I've navigated the world my entire life as Scott, right? And um, it got to a point where sometimes when people said it, it bothered me. And... Uh, you know, I think for any human being, any person, like, I think you should be called what you want to be called. Um, of course, I think one of the, the bigger issues for a lot of people is they, they think that I changed the name and Scott is no longer my name. It's not the case. I just say I completed my name. So Scott is still a part of my name. My full name is Christian Scott Atunde Adra, right? Because, you know, I, we don't have to go through the litany of... Um, you know, a list full of reasons why, you know, historically African-Americans have changed their names um, from Western names. Uh, but for me, I felt that it was important that my name reflected what I saw and felt internally my identity politics said I was. And this is why I have the full name. So I prefer to be referred to as Christian Atunde Ajua, but Scott will always be who I am because it's who I am, you know? So let's take that, let's walk away with that. I'm always Scott too, okay? Go ahead, we have another question. Actually, it's not a question. Uh, I'm gonna complete 
part of this discussion. I think that it's important for people to know how generous you are, that we have a book club in my father's honor, the Big Chief Donald Harrison Senior Book Club, and Christian along with my mother and other, uh, my brother and other musicians and uh, people from the Mardi Gras Indian tradition have given away over 33,000 books valued at over $400,000. And those uh, ceremonial presentations to, of new books to children in our region, in the New Orleans region, have been supported by performances that not only uh, foster greater understanding of the indigenous and cultural arts of our region, but also foster greater academic achievement for children. They're intimately linked to the Louisiana Comprehensive Curriculum, and that is the standard. And Christian has very high standards. You can see he's a very intelligent young man. Front row. And I think that's proof positive there's not a shy gene in, in the uh, Scott family, in the, in the Harrison family, Scott family, et cetera. Um, speaking of trumpets, uh, you know, this is one guy, no matter where we are, I always feel kind of underdressed next to him because this guy is always style. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it might help. I don't know. But, uh, I mean, the way that it works on you and the way that you wear yourself. All right. I definitely want a photo of this. Okay. Um, but, you know, sound great band, incredible generosity, and style is such an important part of how you present yourself publicly, et cetera. And these custom trumpets and reverse flugelhorn? Yeah, well, yeah, this, well, they're new horns. Like this one, um, the one at the bottom here, the sort of copperish color, is uh, the first reverse flugelhorn in the world. So this, it's actually a hybrid of a flugel and a trumpet. Uh, the one above that one is, a, is the first siren in the world. It's a hybrid of a flugel, a trumpet, and a cornet. And uh, there's a smaller version of this that's cornet size that we call a sirenet. I don't have that one yet. And uh, these are sort of earlier versions. That's just a tilted bell trumpet. And that's actually the, the one above it is actually the first siren prototype. And but Adams is out of Adams Germany. is in Holland. Holland. Yeah. It's, it's cool because, well, actually, all of the horns are named for for the, the, the women in my family, right? So uh, this one down here with the tilted bell at the bottom is named after my fiance, Isadora. The one above that one is actually named for, that's the first one that bears my mother's name, Kara. Uh, this one here is for uh, my auntie, Michelle. Uh, that one is another Carol version like that one. And then the sirenette, the small one, is actually named for my aunt Cherise. So, but you guys don't see that one. <laughs> Oh no, come on now. That's killing. That's swag of a sort. It's swag. <laughs> swag. That's cool. Do we have any other questions? Front row. Okay. Hi, um, my name is Tanya, and I had the opportunity to live out in New Orleans for the past month. Mm -hmm. What'd you think? I love it down there. Okay, cool. <laughs> so I just wanted to know, like, what's your favorite thing about New Orleans? The people. I mean, it's definitely the people. You know, like I said before about the women growing up there, but just in general, you know, Culturally, people in New Orleans have a, they just have a different flair, you know. Um, they have a, a sincerity about them. Even when they're lying, something's real, you know. And um, I, I, um, I always appreciated that, even when I was a little boy, you know, someone looking you in your eyes and making sure that, you know, when you were speaking, that they were present. It's just in mannerisms, body language, different things, you know. 
but it's all stuff that I, you know, coveted from a very young age, you know, being in a neighborhood, growing up in a neighborhood where people were intent on making sure that you were nurtured in the way that they thought was appropriate for people there. So the people. What was your favorite thing? The food. The food. We have time for two more questions. Right here in the middle. Uh, Christian, my son um, turned me on to you a few years ago with your CDs, and I've been in love with you ever since. Um, my question to you is, who were, you, you know, in the horn section, who was uh, some of your greatest influences as far as, you know, that got you interested in starting to play the, uh, the horns? Well, I, the first guy was really my uncle. Uh, my uncle, like Ashley says, a guy named Donald Harrison is an alto player, amazing saxophonist, played with, you know, Art Blakey and Lena Horn and Miles and all these guys. And when I was a kid, whenever he would come around, he was always dressed in really nice suits and he has like a dimple, so girls think he's cute. So I sort of got into music for all the wrong reasons. I just wanted to be cool like Uncle Donald, you know. I actually wanted to play the saxophone too, but I was smart enough to know that if I played sax, then I wouldn't be able to hang with him. I wouldn't be able to be in his band because it's the same instrument. So that's how I played, figured, you know, I should maybe play the trumpet. It's interesting about that too is part of the reason all these horns have all these shapes is I actually hate the sound of the trumpet. I've always hated it. No, I'm being real with you. I like, I hate it. So, you know, the, the reason these things are twist up like that so I can get a different texture. But the main guy for me growing up was my uncle, man. It, it, you know, there wasn't anything he couldn't do on the instrument. And uh, he always, he would always say when we would have lessons that whatever you do, no matter what it is that you're talking about or dealing with it in your music, to always play with love in your heart. And like that always like, it's, you know, making me emotional now, but it's always resonated with me. Like, no matter what you're dealing with or what you're going through or what you're speaking about, to make sure that the perspective that you're speaking from is of that of someone that is trying to show people that they love them, you know? So, but, so he was my main guy, yeah. Our last question, back to the right. Peace, Christian. Just What's wanted to congratulate you on the successful evolution. Uh, what have been uh, some of your most, like, difficult challenges as a leader, and how have you overcome them? Man, uh, well, you know, the music industry is rough, man. You know, I, um, I've had situations where before, before I signed the Concord, I'm not going to name any labels or anything like that, but I had a situation where, I, you, know, bef you know, I was negotiating with a guy to make a, a record uh, for one of these major labels that everyone knows. And uh, the guy, after about six months, another guy got dropped from a label and uh, he had been in the market. I hadn't been in the market yet. So they called me up and were like, look, we're not going to sign you. We're going to sign this guy because he has a history in the market. Click. Six months later, I walk into the record shop. And not only did they sign the guy over me, they gave him my album concept, my album title, like everything, right? Which is stuff that I created. It wasn't stuff that the A&R guy created, right? So, I mean, it's... The game is a hard game. You know, a lot of times, you know, if you go to conservatory, people talk to you so much about music, 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 music. And of course, that's incredibly important. But, you know, if you choose to do this for a living, you have to understand that you're also in entering a business world, right? And that's completely different from sort of the nurturing environment of a conservatory learning to play music. But just in general, man, leading a band is hard, man. You know, you have to... If you, you know, if you got a band with six, seven guys in it, you have to manage all those guys' psychologies on a daily basis. 
You know, if you're on the road for five, six weeks in Europe on a bus every day, that could be rough with five, seven men that are the same age going through things, you know? So, I mean, we could go down the list of different things, but, you know, anything that you go into is there's always going to be trials, you know? I just think it's it's important to try and navigate those things with with grace, you know? Uh, you know, I could have got mad and called the NR guy dude and cussed him out because he gave away my record, but I said, you know what? I made that one. I can come up with something better than that and and keep moving, keep moving forward. You know, I'm not going to uh, let something like that affect my sunshine. You know what I'm saying? So you just keep moving foot after foot after foot, forward, forward, forward. All right. Christian Atunde Achua.